Good afternoon and welcome to Midday Magazine for Thursday, June 1st. Welcome to June. I'm Shelby Herbert, reporting for KFSK. Many Petersburg residents woke up without electricity at around 7 a.m. yesterday when the borough switched to diesel power. For the next three hours, a mechanical error caused rolling blackouts across Mitkoff Island. Every year, the Southeast Alaska Power Agency, which provides hydroelectricity to the region, has to pull the plug for a period of maintenance. So for the next week, the communities of Petersburg, Wrangell, and parts of Ketchikan will run on diesel power. Of the three communities, Petersburg was the only one so far to hit a snag during the switch. The borough's utility director, Carl Hagerman, says the day of the switch started out pretty well. His department handled a successful transition to the municipal diesel plant, but then they had an issue with the cooling system on the main generator. We have several generators that are operating at the same time, but one of those generators is put in a lead position so that any load fluctuations on the system are absorbed by that machine. And uh, if that lead machine fails for some reason, then the other machines can't react quick enough to pick up that load, and so the whole system goes down. Hagerman applauds municipal power and light staff for working hard under pressure to restore power to the community. The lights came on, came back on at approximately 10 a.m. With nine days left until the borough returns to hydropower, Hagerman is confident the department won't experience further issues with the generator. But until June 9th, Hagerman says it's important for community members to conserve power. The borough is implementing an, an adjustment fee for the costs of fuel above $2.40 per gallon. All power and light customers, whether they're residential, commercial, or industrial, will pay the same fee, which is spread over the kilowatt hours they used during that window of time. It's very important that everybody does conserve as much energy as possible. It reduces the amount of fuel that we burn, which of course reduces the expense to the department and ultimately the adjustment to the customers. The maintenance period will end and the borough will return to hydropower on Friday, June 9th. But Hagerman says it's important for customers to limit their energy use throughout the entire billing period. That's because the adjustment doesn't only calculate the gallons of fuel dur- burned during the shutdown, but the overall amount of energy the borough uses in the June in the June billing period. For more information, call Power and Light at 907-772-5433. It's shaping up to be another devastating year for communities on the Yukon and Kuskokwim rivers that used to rely on king and chum salmon as the mainstay of their diet. Salmon advocates want to change the Magnuson-Stevens Act, the nation's primary fishery law, so that federal fisheries managers give more consideration to subsistence salmon fishermen. Congresswoman Mary Paltola campaigned on the issue. Salmon advocates point fingers at the ocean-going trawl fleet. The trawlers catch thousands of king and chum salmon in the Bering Sea in their nets by accident as they fish for pollock. It's called bycatch. Meanwhile, along the Yukon, native communities that have relied on salmon for thousands of years weren't allowed to catch a single Chinook for the dinner table last year or the year before. Peltola says it's galling. I think that we should be having honest conversations about the fact that it seems like subsistence fishermen are getting zero consideration. 
and there is zero thought about the management implications when they are getting zero percent of the resource. Peltola, speaking in a recent video call arranged by a fisheries consulting firm, said she'd still like to change the law to put two Alaska tribal representatives on the North Pacific Fishery Management Council, among other amendments. But she doesn't think that's realistic anytime soon. Instead, she's looking at what are called national standards set in the Magnuson-Stevens Act and hopes to change how they're interpreted. If the only change we can make in the 118th Congress is to to take another look at these national standards, we've got to do it, and we've got to do it now. Those national standards are like fundamental management commandments. They say things like fish allocations must be fair and equitable, and bycatch must be minimized to the extent practicable. Those are refined by guidelines, and now the National Marine Fisheries Service has announced it's begun revising three of those guidelines. Oh, it's totally wonky. (laughs) Hannah Heimbuck knows how dry this sounds. She's a commercial salmon fisherman and policy consultant. Heimbuck says it's not a quick fix, but changing the guidelines can reset the priorities for the North Pacific Fishery Management Council so that it's more responsible to nearshore and in-river fishermen. I think that it's an opportunity to kind of be frank about some of the ways that the management plans as they exist now aren't able to manage bycatch in a way that is sustainable in the long term. The amount of salmon in terms of numbers relative to the numbers of pollock we catch is, is de minimis. Brett Payne is the executive director of United Catcher Boats, representing about 70 trawlers working in the Bering Sea, Aleutians, and Gulf of Alaska. He says the Bering Sea fleet is already successful at limiting bycatch. For us to to catch 1.2 million metric tons of pollock and and to only catch 6 to 9,000 Chinook, we say we've done a, a pretty good job. 6,000 to 9,000 Chinook. Payne acknowledges it sounds like a lot to Yukon fishermen when they can't catch any. But he says research shows a lot of those fish weren't bound for the YK Delta, and not every fish was going to survive to maturity anyway. He says trawl bycatch is not to blame for the collapse of western Alaska salmon runs. Salmon advocates say several factors are harming salmon populations, chiefly climate change. But they say that makes it even more important to take action where possible, like against bycatch. The National Marine Fisheries Service said in a Federal Register announcement that it's accepting public comment on new guidelines through September 12th. Reporting from Washington, I'm Liz Ruskin. There aren't many uh, scallop fisheries in Alaska. While the bivalves are plentiful in southeast waters, harvesting them is resource and time intensive. Ezra Dan spoke with a local scallop fisherman who's bringing the delicacy to dinner tables in Sitka and southeast with sustainability in mind. On days when diver Evan O'Brien isn't diving for pink swimming scallops or harvesting gooseneck barnacles off steep rock faces at low tide, you can find him in a slip at Thompson Harbor working on the new diving boat he purchased from Oxnard, California earlier this year. The FV Sinbad was purchased by O'Brien for his company, Merrick Shellfish, from a sea urchin diver, so the boat is equipped with everything he needs for a dive. These are swimming scallops, so you'll swim up to a boulder or something that's covered with them, and in the winter like this, maybe 
I don't know, 10 to 20% of them will take off, start swimming, and I just leave those, and I harvest the ones that stay because they're, they're kind of dormant and they're, they're sort of hibernating, so they're easier to harvest. But they aren't so sleepy in the summertime. As there's more light and the water's starting to warm up a little bit, you'll swim up to that same boulder that's covered, and maybe 80% of them will take off. And then you're just, you know, trying to pick them out of the air. It's like you're trying to catch butterflies or something with a net, um, and that gets much harder. O'Brien isn't new to this type of work. Before diving for scallops, he spent a few seasons diving for sea cucumbers and gooey ducks, another bivalve shellfish industry that thrives in southeast Alaska. Choosing a switch to Pacific swimming scallops wasn't easy for O'Brien and his company. That's because gathering the data necessary to open the fishery is a heavy load. The long-established gooey duck fishery has an inexpensive method of collecting water samples to test biotoxin levels. The Southeast Alaska Regional Dive Fisheries Association buys one boat to collect all biotoxin water samples for gooey duck harvesting. Merrick shellfish doesn't have the same luxury. As a pilot fishery for the scallops and gooseneck barnacles he harvests, O'Brien has to ensure sustainability by collecting a year's worth of data and sending harvest quota amounts to the Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation when he finds a new harvest area. The way it works is I get these different areas open with the DEC, which, like I said, is a slow process. It takes at least a year to get a new area open, um, and they're relatively small areas. I mean, we're not we're talking about like a single inlet kind of thing. Then I request a specific amount of quota from, so say, a 1,000 pounds from this particular inlet. And Fishing Game will look at that request, and if they think it's reasonable, they'll approve that amount of quota. Once he harvests the 1,000 pounds, he's done for that area. My goal is to keep expanding, uh, getting new areas open with the DEC. and I'm, So I'm looking at areas that aren't even open for harvest right now to get a sense of the abundance. And then I have to send in a year's worth of water samples and then a bunch of biotoxin samples, and then that area will open. O'Brien's plan is to get enough of these areas open for harvest so he can manage the fishery like gooey duck and sea cucumber dive operations, where each area is rotated on a three-year break between harvests. However, government fishery regulations haven't been the only obstacle O'Brien has faced. When selling to local grocery stores and restaurants during his first year of operation, O'Brien got complaints about how dirty the shellfish were. So O'Brien built his own special washer. It's basically a garbage can full of brushes aided by a flowing water hose, and after the scallops tumble through as he rotates it, they're clean. The washer is also equipped with two-inch holes so scallops smaller than regulation size can escape. And it works. He's able to deliver his product to local businesses with less grit and grime, though the extra step also means extra time. And it's another barrier to, you know, the real kind of high-volume fishery where you would just harvest thousands of pounds, deliver them to a tender. Um, That's not what this product is. O'Brien's season starts with scallop diving in the midwinter months and is now harvesting gooseneck barnacles to sell. Although O'Brien sometimes has his younger brother assist as a deckhand, Merrick Shellfish is largely a one-man business. But that's okay with him. He says his goal for the fisheries has always been high value, low volume, to have a lower impact on the environment and stocks, while also introducing people to new and unusual seafoods. It's great to just see, even in you know relatively small quantities, see those products in the community and, and people in town enjoying them. Uh, 
because it's something that probably a lot of people have seen if they're if they get the chance to be out on the water and have seen it and maybe noticed it but never considered eating it um, particularly the gooseneck barnacles because they're so weird looking gooseneck barnacles are a delicacy in spain and portugal and many compare the taste to crab or shrimp if you can get past the scaly appearance similar to a dragon's toenails they're a real treat for seafood lovers to eat them Diners must pinch the foot between thumb and forefinger, pull the meat out of its case, remove their claw, and enjoy. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Ezra Dan. The 750-mile race to Alaska starts on Monday. Intrepid competitors are pouring into Port Townsend, Washington, to enjoy their last few days on land. As Reagan Miller reports from Ketchikan, there's a number of fan-favorite teams coming back for another shot at glory and, of course, steak knives. The idea is simple, but the race is not. No motors, no engines, and 750 miles from Port Townsend to Ketchikan, tagging Victoria, British Columbia along the way. Currently, the weather forecast is looking relatively tame for the start of the race, but that can change in a heartbeat. That's Jesse Weigel. He's the race boss. Weigel says about three of the 39 registered vessels have arrived at the start line, and the rest are expected over the weekend. The idea is described like this on the race's website, quote, It's like the Iditarod on a boat with a chance of drowning, being run down by a freighter, or eaten by a grizzly bear. As far as what they'll face on the water, Weigel isn't sure. He says it's part of the draw. Funny thing about Race to Alaska is we, we planted right here uh, in June just be, uh, because it's hard to tell what the weather's going to do. It could be a shake-and-bake kind of slow sit in the sun and pedal your way to Alaska, or we could have uh, gales and, and wind advisories and all sorts of things. But that won't be news to about 30% of the racers, who are what Weagle calls repeat customers. They've done the race before, and they're doing it again this year. That includes Team Madame Oracle and the Porch Prairie Pirates. They've been doing the race human-powered for several years. This team, they've put together a sailing team. Uh, they're going to take it easy <laughs> on a sailboat this year. There's also Team Zen Again Dog, a one-man crew from England taking on the race in a kayak. And there's Team Lillian's Vacation, a one-woman show home-ported in Port Angeles. There aren't any teams hailing from Ketchikan this year but there are teams from across the country, Australia, the United Kingdom, and Canada. First place prize is $10,000, but Weagle says the runner-up prize is the real star of the show. The $10,000 for first place, that's chump change. Really what you're after is a steak nut. The race is separated in courses. The proving ground is from Port Townsend to Victoria, roughly 40 miles. The second leg is nicknamed the Better End and takes a team all the way to Ketchikan, the other 710 miles. Some teams will do just the first leg, others will go all the way, some won't finish. It's a lot easier for the fans. Once the race has started, teams can be tracked online. In Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. Thank you so much for joining me for Midday Magazine. My name is Shelby Herbert, and I'm reporting for KFSK.